Oh, man. Well, good afternoon. Uh, I'm glad you made it here in the middle of the rain. How many of you guys got soaked while walking in? None of you? None of you got soaked while walking in? Ish. It kind of like, like right before one, it just like dumped for like a solid like eight minutes. Uh, and then it kind of like pittered out a little bit, but that was a little crazy. Anyway, good afternoon. Again, if I haven't got to meet you, my name is Aaron. I'm one of our pastors and preachers here at the Trails. Uh, and it's a great joy to be opening up uh, God's word with you once again this week as we are continuing our study in the book of Exodus, uh, which if you're newer to the Bible, uh, the book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible, uh, and that's where we are. And so if you want to open with me, uh, we are going to be uh, going through Exodus uh, chapter or big bold numbers, uh, 28 and 29. Last week we started 28. We're going to pick up on some themes from 28 as we're making our way through 29. Uh, and so this week, uh, again, it's so it's funny, I was getting ready for this sermon, and I was like, last time I preached, it was like part two to Matt's sermon, and now it's like part two to Nino's sermon. So I'm like, I'm the part two guy. So we save uh, the best guys to do part one, and then I just bat clean up. Uh, I come in and see what we can do. So uh, that's where we're going to be at, uh, a little bit of 28 and then dive into 29. As we're turning there, though, uh, I want to begin our time by remembering in the last couple of months what, some things we've looked at in the book of Exodus. Uh, there, there's been one, one thing that we just keep coming back to over and over again, and it has been uh, this. It has been the holiness of God. That is one thing that we have just kept running into, right? Whether it was in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, remember that bush that was on fire, but it wasn't consumed, and the ground itself was made holy by the very presence of God, so the presence of God made the ground itself holy, right? Like he had to take his sandals off before he could come to the ground. Uh, or or uh, when Israel got to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 to 24, they came face to face with the holiness of God. Do you remember they heard the very voice of God give them the Ten Commandments, uh, and, and they weren't permitted to go anywhere near the mountain lest God break out against them, His holiness break out against unholy people and just decimate them uh, because they are unholy uh, and he is holy. And then even these last chapters talking about this tabernacle, the, the tent that God tells uh, Moses that he will make and been laying out these plans for that where God would dwell in the midst of his people as their holy king. And when the Bible talks about God's holiness, the primary thrust of all of these statements refers to God's transcendence his magnificence, to, to the sense in which God is high and superior to anything that there is in the creaturely realm. If that sounded like a great statement, it's because I stole it from R.C. Sproul. Uh, and so, and then that's a great definition of the, the holiness of, of God, his transcendence, his magnificence, the sense in which God is other, higher, superior to everything else that he has made. There is God and there is creation. And he is unlike anything else. And because of that, we've also seen that God has demanded that his people be holy. Can you see this, Elaine? Or is it, it's a little wonky? Are you sure? All right, I just wanted to make sure. I, I, I turned it. I made it strange. Love you. Steve, can you see it? Are you sure? Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. Sorry, just want to make sure. So uh, God has also demanded that, that his people be holy. He is holy and demands they also be holy, which means specifically on how they would live their lives in conformity to God's voice and his commands as his people. 
Remember, are they obeying his voice and they are, are they obeying his covenant? So he's given them laws to be obeyed. Laws meant for their flourishing as people so that through their obedience to the commands of God, they would demonstrate their willingness to live under the kingdom of God. That him is their king, they as his people. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been studying the covenant between God and his people. How they might live in lives in conformity to God's holy standards. And then we've also seen all the building plans that God has given for his tabernacle, his tent, his sanctuary, his holy place. That will be in the middle of his people. And then starting last week in chapter 28, we saw the instructions that God was giving to Moses up on Mount Sinai. Remember, Moses is all the way up there. And we learned that there were certain men that God had chosen or set apart from the nation of Israel to serve in that tabernacle as priests. And that's really important because these guys didn't like self-volunteer. They weren't like, I'd like to be a priest. No, that's not how it worked. They didn't like crowdsource it or vote. Like, do we think that person should be one? Do we think that person? I don't know. No, God himself said, these people will be my priests. They were these elected people out of the elected of God. So, so they, they were uh, the elected of God, chosen by God for this very specific task of living their lives to serve God and his people. So Nino wonderfully taught us last week. We began to learn all about the priesthood and what their clothing would be like. And, uh, and there's all these like weird things that if you look for in Gap, you'd be like, you guys got an ephod? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Right? Like, there's all these like weird things. Like, we don't have like we want to walk around with turbans on our heads here. So, you're like, it's a turban and an ephod and a breastpiece. I, I have no idea what these things are. Right? And and so Nino walked through and explained all of these things and what they were. And so we saw these detailed instructions for how the tabernacle would be constructed. Right? Which materials go where and how they all fit together. And the exact same thing we saw with these priests. In the same way that we saw in the Holy of Holies, in the Holy Place, in the tabernacle, right? It went from gold to bronze to more common materials. We saw the exact same thing with the high priest's clothing, right? There's gold and these beautiful blues and, and ribbons, uh, not ribbons, uh, this beautiful ephod and these beautiful stones. And then we saw the priests and their clothing was still beautiful and glorious, but less so, right? In the way that the Holy of Holies and then the Holy places, less so. so. So in the same way that the tabernacle was set up, the same way the priesthood was set up. Thus we learned that even by their clothing, they were meant to demonstrate the very holiness of God. And then it was in chapter 28 where we learned who the men were that God had chosen to be his priests. Uh, we saw that it was uh, Aaron and Aaron's sons. Not me. This is who I was named after, but not me. Uh, not me and my sons. Uh, but, but, but his sons were disobedient like mine are. Um, time to time. So Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, and, and Ithamar. And, and as, as the chapter continued, when we saw their clothing, we saw as well, as mentioned a moment ago, it's mentioned built for glory and for beauty. And God's designs, his exact designs for what they ought to wear. And the vocabulary of this, by the way, is really cool. Because what we see is that God clothes them. Clothes. Do you remember the last time that we saw in the Bible where God clothed Someone, Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned against God, God comes, exposes their sin, they're reconciled back to God, all those consequences for their sin, there's a promise given of this future son, this seed that would come from the woman that would restore man back to a right relationship with God, they believe in this promise of God, and then what does God do? Clothes them. He takes away their shame and he clothes them. 
Likewise here, God is clothing once again. So as we're seeing the priests being clothed, we remember how Adam was a priest of God, but did Adam succeed? No, he failed. Now again, we see a new priesthood being brought in. Adam as priest failed. New priesthood is brought in. Now, spoiler alert, these guys will also fail. But, uh, but in this moment, this is a, this is a beautiful thing. Uh, we see clothing the priests. They're like the new Adam, the better priests of God. They're clothed by him. And then at the end of chapter 28, we see this wonderful conclusion to God's commands. If you want to look with me at verse 41, you'll see it. We see this wonderful conclusion to God's commands for the clothing of these priests. So after all the instructions are given, what they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to look like, we read that Moses should then put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with them. And you shall do, and there's three things we see here. You shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that, so that they may serve me, God, as priests. And these words might be newer to you, right? Or, or maybe like you've been around church before and you're like, I don't know. I, I mean, I kind of know those words, like anoint and ordain and consecrate. I've heard those words, but if I were to ask you, like, this, this was like a class and you were supposed to like write down an answer of like, what does it mean to anoint someone? You're like, oh, I hope I know. Or ordain them. You're like, oh. Uh, you might, might, might be a little fuzzy, or maybe you're brand new to the Bible, and you're like, bro, I got no idea. So what we're going to do, I'm going to walk through real quick and, and, and teach you what these words mean, because in chapter 29, we're going to see them come up again, and it's very important. So I want to consider briefly what these three words mean and, and, uh, and look at them. So firstly, Moses is called to anoint them. And the word here is the word in Hebrew. You ready? I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word. You can say it after me. You ready? Mashak. Nicely done. So if that kind of sounds a little familiar to you, uh, it, it, even in English, it's because the same root word is the Hebrew word for mashak or Messiah, the anointed one. So when we read in the New Testament, for example, that Jesus is the Messiah, anytime you see the word Messiah, it means the anointed one. Uh, so that's really important. So if you've ever been reading the New Testament, and you're like, he's the Messiah. I don't know what that means. Uh, it means he's the anointed one. And this word mashak simply means to smear or spread a liquid or draw a hand over, or quite literally to pour oil on the heads, thus symbolically demonstrating that these men are being uh, set apart for a servant's task. Now, the only people in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the only people in the Pentateuch who are anointed are the priests. There are altars that are anointed. There are uh, sacrifices that are anointed. But the priests are the only people setting them apart by this special act to recognize their role of being set apart by God for this particular task of the priesthood. Now, they won't always be the only people that are anointed, right? As we see unfold throughout the Bible, kings will also be anointed. And this idea of anointing kings will pop up, right? So you might think of like King Saul or King David. Remember being anointed? Maybe you read through 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel recently. And so there will be priests, uh, priests and kings that will later be anointed. And even in that, there's this connection between priests and kings that I want to make for us real quickly before we keep moving on. There's a connection here. Because throughout the Old Testament, there is the anointing of kings. It's supposed to remind you as well of the anointing of these priests. Tying together a, an idea, a type that will be fulfilled later on in the Bible. In fact, if you want to flip with me, you can. 
Zechariah chapter 6. Now, if you're like, Zechariah is a book of the Bible? Yes, it is. Uh, Zechariah is one of, it's in the book of the 12. There's 12 minor prophets. Zechariah is one of them. So this is after Israel has come back into the promised land, after they were in exile in Assyria and Babylon, and Cyrus the Persian came in, and and, uh, they kind of opened the gates and let him take over Babylon, and then they came back. So that's when Zechariah is a prophet. And Zechariah, in chapter 6, he is told by God to take silver and gold to make a crown and to place it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who is the high priest of Israel. So he takes the high priest and he anoints him as king. Thus Joshua, son of Jehozadak, is the priest king of Israel. And if you're already thinking, a priest can be a king? Wait a minute, I think I know of someone who is the high priest and also the king of Israel, Jesus. Then you'd be right. Uh, and so, so right here we see in, in Zechariah chapter 6 is this beginning where there's a priest on the throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Thus we have what we have unfolding even here at the beginning of Exodus chapter 28 and 29 in the priesthood is the high priest. He's anointed by God. He wears a crown of gold. As we will see, remember he has the turban, and then he has that, that uh, gold placard that says, holy to the Lord. So even in our uh, chapter today, uh, verse 6, 29-6, it's a, called a holy crown that he wears as the high priest. And so in the priesthood, we have this, this typological and symbolic moment that will be built on in the Bible's narrative to lead us all the way to the anointed one, Jesus, our Messiah, who will be both high priest and king, anointed and crowned, who ushers in the very kingdom of God. So the idea of anointing is really important. It starts here with these commands, and it will come up over and over again throughout the story of God in redemptive history. So the priests are to be anointed. Secondly, they are to be ordained. And the word here, ordained, is literally translated as uh, fill his hand or fill their hands. So if you think about the word ordained, this is what it means. It means to fill your hand. And it's as through the work of acting as a priest between the Lord and his people, is that work is being placed into the hands of the priests. So ordaining them literally means to fill their hands with the work of doing the mediation between God and his people. Right, so as they're filling their hands with sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. That is the ministry of ordination. So when someone's ordained, it means you, we're filling you, filling your hands with the work of ministry, uh, which we'll see in our text today is the priests, literally, their hands will be filled with a sacrifice. Uh, you'll see it when we get there. You'll be like, oh, this is what you meant. And literally, it's right there. So uh, lastly, they are then to be consecrated consecrated, which means to be set apart, to dedicate, to be made holy before the Lord. And it seems that to be made holy is to be devoted to God because you are devoted to God. You are separate, therefore, from ordinary use. So while the vast majority of the Israelites will own land and they'll farm and they'll have various other jobs, these men and their families have been elected, chosen out of Israel, set apart by God to devote themselves to this priestly ministry. Thus they are to be separated from ordinary work to give their entire lives to mediating between God and and his people, offering sacrifices and singularly devoting themselves to his service. Now, you might be wondering when you read a text like that or you hear me say something like that, well, isn't all of Israel supposed to be a kingdom of priests? 
they all a kingdom of priests? So why are these men anointed, ordained, and consecrated as priests if everyone is to be a priest? Well, the idea here is that in the exact same way that the priestly line of Aaron within the tribe of Levi stands between God and Israel, so Israel is going to stand between God and the nations. So just as Israel is uh, able to relate to God through the work of the priests and the sacrifices the priests made, so the nations of the world are going to be able to relate to God through the ministry of the nation of Israel. So they are a kingdom of priests, a beacon of light to the world around them, but these men in particular are chosen by God for the daily task of mediating between God and his people. So before we dive into chapter 29, we need, to be, uh, we need to remember this installation of priests isn't happening right now in this moment. It's not happening in Exodus chapter 29. Uh, they, they, uh, Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving these instructions from God. Uh, the tabernacle still needs to be constructed uh, for these men to be able to fulfill any of their duties. That's what we're seeing in Exodus 29 are the instructions. Leviticus chapter 8 is actually where we see the fulfillment of all of these events unfold. But here we have the rubric that Moses is to follow for these men as they are welcomed into this new role. So it's kind of like day one of their new job, right? It's, New job, day one of it. What is your welcome package? What does the first week look like? Uh, You don't know walking into it. God lets them know, week one, this is what it's going to look like for you. It's supposed to look like what we see in Exodus chapter 29. Now, the first thing that we'll also see in this chapter is how God will consecrate these men. See, because of primary concern, as we've talked about, is the holiness of God. Thus, the holiness of these men is very important to God and to all of Israel. If God is holy, these men must be holy. They must be a holy priesthood. So the main question of Exodus 29, if you have a pen or a pencil and you are a writer in your Bible, you can write this over Exodus chapter 29. The main question is, how can sinful, unholy men serve a holy God? How can they? They're just going to walk in day one, and God's just going to go unholy, boom, smite them, and they die, right? So how do these unholy, broken, sinful men approach a holy God to make sacrifices on behalf of a broken, unholy, sinful people? I mean, won't God just simply reject the sacrifices they make because they're unholy? Won't God's holiness and justice just lash out on these men as they draw near in, in, in sacrifice and he draws near in judgment? This is a real question. It's a scary question. It's a very practical question because these men have not earned this position before God. They are sinful, broken men who, as we will see, have hearts that are prone to wandering away from the voice and the covenants of God. And they will lead Israel into sin. Very quickly, we will see that in chapters 32 to 34 of Exodus. These broken, sinful men, how can they approach and serve a holy God? In this chapter, we're going to see something, something about how all sinful people, not just these men, this is the primary concern here. For us, looking at this, though, we ask that exact same question. People like you and I, how do we approach a holy God? Like, How, how do we do this? And so as we, as we see this chapter unfold, we'll see how they can approach a holy God, but also how we can approach a holy God. 
So there's much for, here, for us here today, even from this text, to learn. So let's dive into 29, and I'll show you what I mean. And the chapter starts off, if you look at me at the first three verses, uh, there is a list of everything that Moses is going to need throughout the rest of the chapter. So these are the items on his shopping list that God gives him. Like, you get some of those lists, like from Costco, like, pick up these things. And like, without the list, I don't know about you, gentlemen, I, without the list, I'm lost. I'm just walking around Costco, I'm like, picking up random things, like, I don't I think we need this. And I get home, I'm like, we didn't need that. You're like, I thought we did. I don't know what to do with it. Uh, but here we see Moses is going to have the exact list of everything he needs to install these men. So let's look at them. Here is his shopping list. Verses 1 to 3. Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil. Bloop. You shall make them of, of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. So here's your list, Moses. Get everything set. These are the items you're going to need to consecrate these men to make these unholy men holy before the Lord. And then we see the beginning of the process. The consecration of Aaron and his sons begins in verse 4. And the very first thing that we notice in verse 4 is what Moses is to do. Firstly, he shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Thus, the very first thing that they must be is washed clean, signifying, as one pastor, Matthew Henry, notes, that those must be clean who bear the vessels of the Lord, Isaiah 52, 11. Those that would perfect holiness must cleanse themselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. And this again reminds us, does it not, of Exodus chapter 19? Do you remember when Israel had to scrub their clothes clean before they could approach God? In the same way, these priests need to wash themselves. Right? And we talked about why. Like, does that somehow just make you acceptable before God? Like if you showed up with, with like donut dribble on your shirt today, are you unacceptable before God because you have dirty clothes? No, what this demonstrated was their hearts before the Lord and their hearts' intention in coming before the Lord. They would be washed clean as his people, externally demonstrating what's gone on deep inside of their hearts and their hearts' intention as well. Oh, uh, another uh, pastor, Alec Matir, he explains that the garments that we learned about last week that were made for beauty and glory, these precious garments, they cannot be put on the unclean person. Therefore, a ceremony of cleansing must precede their robing. So firstly, they are brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they are washed clean with water. Secondly, we see in verses 5 and 6, uh, we see Moses told to take the garments and put, put uh, on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And so here we see that, secondly, Moses is told to robe these men, to put the garments on them. And it's important this happens first with Aaron as the high priest, and then we see that it happens with his sons in verse 8. So again, the order is you're washed, and then you're clothed, you're robed. Again, Matthew Henry, he explains the importance of this beautifully. He says they were to be clothed with holy garments to signify that it was not sufficient of them to put away the pollutions of sin, but they must put on the graces of the Spirit and put on their new clothes, clothed with righteousness, Psalm 132.9. In essence, they're really just to put off their old garments and put on their new ones. 
which is the exact same thing we see in the New Testament over and over again, isn't it? Colossians, put off this and put on this. In the same way, these men are to put off these things and put on these things. In doing so, they are prepared and strengthened for their work. So they're washed in their robes, and now they're wearing all those beautiful garments, or they will be in the future, that God had commissioned for them to be made. And then next, Aaron's head is to be anointed. We see this in verse 7. It says, you shall take the anointing oil, and you shall pour it on his head and anoint him. Thus, Aaron is to have this oil, this anointing oil, smeared on him. He is the anointed one to serve the Lord as the high priest. So the anointing that we saw at the tail end of chapter 28, here it is. He is anointed. Then we have the statement of God's intent. Look at me in verse 9. It says, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So that's the second thing we mentioned. They must be ordained, their hands filled with the ministry. So that's verse 9 of chapter 29. And then we move on, and there are these three sacrifices that we see uh, to install them as priests. And these sacrifices, they are actually the means by which we see how these unholy men can be made holy. And the order of these uh, highlights the importance. So we see the personal need for forgiveness, the call to wholly devote themselves, and uh, the fellowship offering that they now have. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And so in that, what we're going to see is uh, throughout these three sacrifices that their work, their hands will be filled with as they serve God's people in the process of being made holy. So sacrifice number one, we see in verses 10 to 14. And this is the sacrificing the bull as a sin offering. And and I label this offering as the sin offering because that's what God says in verse 14. If you look down at verse 14, it says it is a, that's the last couple of words in the English text, it is a sin offering offering. Now, before we go through these uh, verses, you might first wonder, what is a sin offering? If you're like, you're like I, what in the world does that mean? What is a sin offering? Well, to answer that question, you have to break it down. Well, one, what is sin? Well, the Bible explains that sin is rebellion against God. It is his desire to be like God, to choose for yourself what is right and what is wrong. It is not obeying God's voice and God's covenant. It is willful disobedience. It is what we see in the lives of our kids. Or if you do not have kids, you can see it uh, in small group uh, with the kids that are in your small group. Uh, or uh, we're here on Sundays as kids have this propensity to just willfully disobey. right? And it comes from an early age. My 18-month-old daughter looks at me and says, no. I'm like, what do you mean No. The answer is yes. She, she doesn't know yes. All she knows is no. Uh, I don't know why. The yes is just not in her vocabulary. And we're all kind of born that way. Yes is not in our vocabulary. No. I want what I want, and I want it now. We're like the little, little gods of our own little kingdoms, and everything must bend to us, which is why we get so frustrated when we're driving, because no one else is a good driver. Only you are a good driver. And if everyone drove like you, Everything would be great, but they don't. The same way, we willfully disobey. We turn the other way. We want to be like God, and only God is God. Thus, every sin is an act of rebellion against the high king of heaven. We break his laws. We choose to go our own way. And what the Bible explains is that we've all sinned against God, every single one of us. There is absolutely no exception, and we are not the exception to the rule. And this is actually why all of us will one day die unless the Lord comes back. Think about that. The death rate is 
everyone dies. Why? Because the wages of sin, God says, is death. What we earn for our sin is death, but not just death here and now in life. Rather, every single sin that we commit against God is storing up the judgment of God, the judgment of the holy king of kings that we will face into eternity future, our next life. Thus, the Bible explains that all that we deserve before God is death here and now. We all deserve the judgment of God for all of eternity future as well, for all of our sins we've done throughout our lives. Therefore, a sin offering is the means by which God is made for guilty sinners to receive forgiveness and pardon. So God has said, listen, I know you're like a broken truck that always pulls left. I'm going to make a way for you to be made righteous, a way for you to be cleansed of your sin. Thus, a sin offering is a means by which God is made for guilty sinners to receive forgiveness and pardon. It's an offering standing condemned one in place of another, one facing the consequences of sin for the other, one dying, another not dying. So one in the place of another. Thus, a sin offering atones or pays the debt and the consequences of another, namely the one who offers it. So a sin offering is one standing condemned in the place of another, that the judgment that the individual deserves for their sin, namely death and eternal punishment before God, is paid by another. Thus, the debt is canceled. And therein lies the answer to the question, how do these unholy men become a holy priesthood? Is it their election? Is it their washing? Their robing? Is it their anointing? No. No, it begins here with the sin offering. Thus, the very first order of business that these guys are to do, day one, welcome to work, is you have a broken, busted up problem deep inside of your soul that needs to be rectified before we can move forward. Welcome to work. Uh, and, and so this is day one, this is what they're told. So on this very special day when the priests are consecrated, the very first thing that needs to happen is have a sacrifice that is made on behalf of their sin. They are sinners who deserve God's wrath to be poured out upon them. They're just as flawed and sinful and rebellious as anyone. Thus before they serve their fellow Israelites, and stand before God, mediating between God and his people, they need to make a sacrifice for their own sins before they can serve others. Thus, they begin serving by admitting their constant dependence on the mercy and the grace of God. That is the foundation of where their whole ministry begins. This constant dependence. They they don't deserve to stand before God and minister. No, they're deeply sinful. But they can come because one stands condemned in their place for them. Thus, by faith, these men obey the voice of God and keep the covenant by offering sacrifices. So faith in God's prescribed means of receiving forgiveness, along with faithfulness of actually doing it, purifies these men. It cleanses them, it pardons them, and it makes them holy. And it's also the means by which the bronze altar uh, there in the court of the tabernacle is purified. It's broken in as the very first sacrifice in the tabernacle. So let's examine the verses and see how it goes. So how is this sacrifice commanded by God? Firstly, bring the bull and have them lay their hands upon the head of the bull. Now, this is crucial. They're laying their hands upon it. In this moment, there is a recognition that by faith, that atonement, at one meant 
with God is being made as this animal is standing in their place. So they place their hands on the head of the bull, which then brings us to the next necessary step. Verse 11, the bull is killed. The bull receives the death blow on behalf of the consequences of the sin of the priests. Thus there is this physical, tangible loss of life. Blood is spilt. Death occurs. And it is enacted and received by faith so that the sin is atoned for by the spilling of blood. Note as well, where does this happen? Is this in the holy place or the holy of holies? No, where is it? It's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now this is very important because these men are not in a holy place yet because are they holy yet? No. So they would be killed immediately by a holy God because this process of them being made holy is not yet complete. They're not allowed into the holy place yet. But as we'll see at the end of the seven-day inauguration period, they would be able to then enter into and minister before God without immediately just coming under the judgment of God and dying. So if you're reading through and you're wondering, why isn't this in the holy place? Why is this outside? Why is this entrance of the tent of meeting? What's going on here? Like you're here or you're in Leviticus 8. You're like, what's going on? Uh, that's, that's why. There's not allowed in yet. Then thirdly, Moses is to take some of the blood and put it on the horns of the bronze altar and then pour it out at the base of the altar. And then in verse 13, we see some practical notes of laying out exactly how to do the sacrifice and what he's supposed to do with the meat and the entails and the insides of the bull. They, they are to be burned on the bronze altar. See that in verse 13. And then the flesh, skin, and such, all that is to be burned outside of the camp. So that's sacrifice number one, which then brings us to the next part of installation day uh, where we see that two rams that were mentioned in verse one are to be sacrificed in verses 15 to 28. Or 18 to 28. 15, 15, to, 20, 15 to 28. I have 18 there. It's supposed to be 15. Uh, so sacrifice number one, uh, sorry, sacrifice number two, but ram number one, the first ram is to be uh, a burnt offering. We see that in verse 18, meaning that it's going to be completely burnt up on the bronze altar. It, burnt offerings as well, if you're like, man, I don't know, burnt offering, I don't, I don't what does that mean? Uh, burnt offerings may, uh, may not be something you've said a whole lot in life. Uh, A.W. Pink, he helps us understand what these sacrifices are. He writes, uh, burnt offerings, he says, were the highest types of sacrifice in Scripture. In fact, he noted that the very first reference to a burnt offering, do you know when it happens? First reference, burnt offering in Scripture? Abraham called to sacrifice Isaac on the altar as a burnt offering, completely consumed. Which is to be particularly noted, he says, is the willingness and the readiness of Isaac's conforming to his father's will. And then he goes on to say, of course, the sacrifice looks forward to Jesus, who laid down his life as a perfect sacrifice, completely devoted to God, and foreshadows the perfect devotedness of the Son to the Father, which is the basis or the spring of Jesus' entire earthly life and ministry and sacrificial death. So the central thought in this kind of offering is total devotedness. So if you see burnt offering, just think it's burnt completely. Like you, your candle's all burnt, it's gone. In the same way, the sacrifice burnt completely. It's gone. Total devotedness. So that's what a burnt offering is. It, it demonstrates total devotedness to God and to his service. Which is also, by the way, this is, this is for free. Uh, also, by the way, when we see, when we see uh, Paul encourage Christians to do what with our bodies? Living sacrifices. 
It's that same idea. We're wholly devoted to the things of the Lord, to dedicate ourselves wholly to him. But back to our text. Uh, after the sin offering comes this burnt offering. And then we see that the same pattern actually unfold. So the priest uh, is to lay their hands on the head of the ram. We see that in verse 15. And then they kill the ram, and Moses takes some of the blood, and he throws it against the sides of the altar. We see that in 16b. And then cut the ram into pieces and wash it and put it on the altar and then burn it all up. It's a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. We see that in verses 17 and 18. And so after the sin offering, which atones for their sin, we have a burnt offering, which demonstrates their complete devotion to the Lord. Then we come to a third sacrifice in verse 19, sacrifice number 3. It is in this sacrifice where we see that the priests are ordained. We'll see in a moment their hands are literally filled with ministry. And it's the sacrifice that demonstrates that they now have fellowship with God and with one another. As we will end the sacrifice with a meal, they will be eating at the end of this. Which, doesn't that just remind you of Exodus 24? Do you remember how they have this covenant ratified with blood? Some of that is put on the altar. Some of it is sprinkled on the people. And, and then where do the 70 elders and Aaron and Moses and two of Aaron's sons, they go up to the mountain and what do they do? They eat with God. They behold God and they eat with him. In the same way, this will end with them having fellowship with one another and with God as God's priests. So, sacrifice number three. They, again, they lay their hands on the head of the ram, verse 19. Moses kills the ram. Moses is commanded to take part of the blood uh, in verse, verse 21. And this is where he sprinkles it on the garments of Aaron and his sons. Again, Exodus 24, sprinkles it there. And then verse 20, the verse right before that, actually tells us that Moses is also commanded to put some of the blood on the bodies of the priests, which, if I'm honest, sounds kind of strange. You know what I mean? So it's specifically the tip of the right ear, Thumb of uh, the thumbs of the right toe, or sorry, the thumb of the right hand. I missed that. And then the great toes of their right feet. So a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit down there. And you're like, one, why the right side and not the left? Any lefties? You're like, I'm left out. Uh, left, literally, you're left out. You get it? Dad joke, dad joke, left out. Uh, so, but but why, the, why the left? Why, why, I mean, why not the left? Why the right side of the body? Why these specifics? And we're not expressly told answers to these kind of questions. But one of the things that I heard this past week I thought was a really beautiful explanation. So it's not like gospel truth. Uh, but I would put something for you to consider. As pastor, he guesstimated that it's because of the importance of these three places in the lives and ministry of these men. He said, for example, the ear is the instrument of hearing, and the hand is the instrument of work, and the toe is representative of the feet for walking. So he said, it's as if their whole life is being consecrated for this purpose of listening to the voice of God and then carrying out the work that God has ordained for them. And I liked that. I was like, that's pretty good. That's a, a great way for us to think through maybe why that could 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 be so. If you like that, great, enjoy it. If not, that's okay. You don't, you don't have to like that. Uh, but, but either way, these guys are marked by the blood of the sacrifice. The blood of this ram of their ordination is upon their bodies and their clothing. Thus they are consecrated. They're purified. They are literally made holy, we read, by this blood that is sprinkled upon them. 
And then verse 22, Moses is told to take the insides of the ram, the right thigh of the ram, along with one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil. We see that in 23a. And then one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that's before the Lord, verse 23b, which are the other items that he was told to prepare for that installation day. And they are to be placed on the palms of Aaron and the palms of his son. So remember, we talked about ordination, filling their hands. In this moment, with this sacrifice, after they are made holy by this blood sprinkled upon them and on their ears and thumbs and toes, they now are filling their hands with this sacrifice. It's kind of a beautiful thing. And then verse 24, they are told to wave them before the Lord. It's kind of this side-to-side motion recognizing in this what a wave offering is, is recognizing that these are gracious gifts from God that you are waving and offering back to him. So God gives it to you, and right back, you're offering it back to the Lord. And so they wave them, acknowledging God's kindness, and then they actually are to place them on the altar, and they are to be burnt up as an offering before the Lord, verse 25. But unlike the burnt offering, uh, uh, sacrifice number three, the third one, Not all of this ram is to be burned up. Rather, we see in verse 26, you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's uh, orientation, no, ordination, uh, and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. So this is from Moses. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that's contributed for the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. So part of the sacrifice was waved before God, along with some of the bread, and then it was burnt up on the altar. That's God's portion, and part of it was theirs, both the flesh of the ram and of the bread. So Aaron and his sons were to eat this meal at the door of the tabernacle. We see that if you want to look at verses uh, 31 uh, to 33. That's what's going on there. They shall eat those things, verse 33, which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. So they have this meal, this fellowship meal uh, with God to signify, as Matthew Henry notes, that God called them not just his servants, but also his friends. That's really good. That God has this desire to sup or eat with them and they with one another. So now we see the true intention of why they're being consecrated, why are they made holy, that they might have fellowship with God and with one another as his priests, as they're helping in this mediation process of God. Thus, now they are a holy priesthood. Thus, having been elected and washed and robed and anointed and having their sin atoned for, now their hands are filled with the ministry. And this ordination process, as we see in verses 35 to 37, was to take seven days. This is not a quick thing. Thus we read, thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I've commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day, if you're a circler, you should circle that. Every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Do that every single day for seven days. This atoning sacrifice was to be made for their sins. Now, if you think about that, you might not own any bulls. I don't. Uh, I have a friend of mine that owns uh, like 65 cow. Matt Plett, the pastor of Trinity Fellowship. I was talking to him about cows the other day. I don't have them, and he has them. I'm like, tell me about cows. Uh, so tell me about cows. And bulls, I don't know if you've been in the market recently. Bulls are very expensive. Uh, and bulls have 
always been very expensive. And that's all you really need to know about bulls uh, to understand that when they offer seven bulls, one a day, this is a costly sacrifice. What do bulls do? They help you produce more cows. If you lose seven of them, there's no reproduction happening. Right? This is a costly sacrifice for these men. And the cost is worth it. God says that you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, shall anoint it, consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. She has this holiness over and over and over again. And then we then see in verses 39 to 42 a prescription given by God that though there would be other offerings that would happen throughout their day as they're serving as priests, there would be two sacrifices that would be sure to mark every single day of their ministry. When you first walk into the office, first thing you do, when you leave the office, what's the last thing that you do? Every single day, you are to do these two things. So there'd be an offering in the morning, another at sunset. Speaking of which, doesn't that also remind you of the language of Genesis? Morning and evening, and then there was a day. Same thing here. There's morning and evening, and there's a sacrifice that marks every single day. So in the morning, they were to offer one lamb, 22 liters of flour with 3.5 liters of beaten oil. I did the, I did the, the, the conversion for you so you know what's going on. And then five-sixths of a liter of wine, which is a lot of wine. I'm just pouring that out like it's, it's over. Uh, and then at sunset, uh, you do another lamb, uh, and then you do the grain and the drink offering again just as in the morning. And God says, this is a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I'll meet with you to speak to you there. And then we get into this last section of the chapter, which contains some wonderful promises that God would do. Beautiful things. And we see these verses unfold. Firstly, that he will meet with the people, and that the, the tabernacle will be sanctified by his glory. That will be made holy by God's very own glory. Not by the sacrifices themselves we see, but by the glory of God upon it. Thus, God says, he will consecrate the tent of meeting, the altar, Aaron and his sons. And then the great aim of all these things, as we've repeatedly said in the last couple of months, is the wonderful promise that God will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And then we see this very common refrain, verse 46, that we've come to love so dearly in this book, where God says, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And it's here in these last couple of verses where we see a summary statement penned by Moses and reflecting the very heart of God as a gracious reminder of why the whole priesthood is needed in the first place. It's meant for these guys, but also this is meant for us in the future, looking back on this, as we're reading and studying through this. See, the whole point of this is not that we get bogged down in the details, uh, but, uh, you know, those kinds of things, like why in the world did we just spend so much time walking through Exodus chapter 29 and learning about the priesthood? It's all summed up here, verse 46. All this has been given to Israel and to us so that Israel and we, by extension, would know he is the Lord their God and he is by faith now the Lord our God. See, this idea of knowing God is just a primary intention all the way throughout the book of Exodus. Has it not been? Look at all the ways we've seen it. Over and over again. We've talked often about how God reveals himself in particular ways that Moses might know that he's God 
and the intentions that through judgment that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know that he is God. Not only that, but that the nations might know that he is God and that Israel themselves might know that he is God. The the book of Exodus is just filled with God's intentions that he be known and that he dwell with his people. Everything that we saw happen in Exodus or in Genesis chapters 1 to 3 is systematically being undone by God. By their sin, they're out of the presence of God. Now, by God's grace and through faith, they're welcomed back into the very presence of God. And God is dwelling with them in their midst as a people. And he, the transcendent, uncreated one, the God who created everything that exists simply by speaking it into existence, the one who holds everything together by the word of his power, he, the only true and living God, wants to dwell with them, his chosen people, to dwell in their midst, to be imminently with them. And he wants to be known by his people and approached by his people and have fellowship with his people. And not because he needs them, right? He doesn't need them to fulfill some unmet desire or longing in his heart. Remember, remember that old movie uh, with Tom Cruise where he's, you, you complete me. And oftentimes that's how we think about God. Like, oh, we complete him. There's like a U-shaped, U-shaped hole in the heart of God. And oh, he, he just needs you. That is not the God of the Bible. He is not a God that needs you for anything. You fulfill no unmet desire in his heart. No, he has always known from pure fact of who he is as a triune God, always known perfect community and relationship and fellowship. Out of his fullness, he has created everything that exists. Not because he needs us, but because he loves us and wants us. And that is a huge big E on the Christian eye chart. It's very important. Thus, everything has been unfolding according to his plans and purposes from before the foundations of the world in the book of Exodus that Israel might know him, his character, his power, his holiness, but not just knowing with an intellectual knowledge, rather an intellectual knowledge that is mixed with a closeness of relationship. That's God's intent, right? Like, I know my wife. I know her. I know lots of things about her. I could, like, write term papers about her, but I also know her. I spend time with her. I know what she loves. I know what she likes. I know if I want to surprise her, I know what to bring her home from the store. Well, she'll feel loved and like I I thought about her. I, I know her in the same way. The goal of studying God's word is not that we just know God. Even demons know God and they shudder, but they hate him. They despise him. But Israel's knowing is not supposed to be like that. (laughs) it's not supposed to be like how demons know God. No, it's it's supposed to be intellectual and experiential and personal and communal. And as you've been seeing the last couple of months, God's liberation of, of Israel from Egypt was that he would dwell with his people again to be their God, dwelling in the midst of, of them as their God, Savior, and King, that they might become who they are as his holy people, living lives in conformity with his voice and with his covenant, shining the light of the knowledge of God from Israel out to the nations so that the nations might also see that there is a God in Israel, that they might know God, they, they might see their unique lives as God's people, living under God's laws and obedient to God's voice, and and that they might see a true representation of who God is, that they also might repent from their worthless demons and choose to follow him. That's God's intention. He he isn't to be approached flippantly. Those we've seen, God is holy in the tabernacle and priesthood. They stand as a perpetual reminder of the holiness of God, and they help answer the question of how sinful people can have a holy God dwell in their midst without destroying them. 
For the priesthood needs sin offerings to atone for their sin, and so does Israel. Thus daily, these priests, they have their hands filled with ministry. They've been ordained to have their hands filled with ministry. And every day, that is what they do. They stand and offer sacrifices. Every morning, every evening, and all in between, they stand as a perpetual reminder to the people of Israel that their God is holy, and he demands holiness from them as his nation. And these daily costly sacrifices are the means by which Israel demonstrates their faith that God has made a way for unholy people to be declared holy before him. Think about it. If you are Israel, you're, you're living, the tabernacle's in your midst. You're all around it with your camp set up. When you walk out in the morning and you look towards the tabernacle, what do you see? Smoke rising up from sacrifices. You probably smell the wonderful smells of cooking meat. Can you imagine how wonderful that would be? It's like, it's like being at Disney World and all you can smell is cookies. Uh, but but they're, they're smelling wonderful meat. As a Texan, that's my dream. Uh, it's my dream. That, that's, when we read here about the priesthood, their garments, their sacrifices, what we need to remember is all of this stands as a perpetual reminder of some really important things. Firstly, that God is holy and that they are sinful. And yet, God has made a way for Israel to be pardoned for their covenant faithlessness and the holiness of God upheld, and it's through these sacrifices. And isn't it good that God in his kindness has made a way for these rebellious Israelites to be declared innocent before him by faith that is made evident through their sacrifices? Like by admitting their sin, by bringing sacrifices, by placing their hands on it and the sacrifice being slaughtered right before their very own eyes, seeing the wages of their sin and the great kindness of God. Thus their faith is not to be in the blood of bulls and goats. No, no, no. Rather, their faith is in God. And their faith is in God's promise and in God's word and God's kindness. Their, their faith is not in the blood of that. Their, their faith is in the word of God, promise of God. As they repent from their sin, they, they make these sacrifices. That God was burning up the consequences of their sin before him so that they would be made holy. That they might become who they are as kingdom of priests to the world around them. Now, you might wonder at the end of this, well, Aaron, again, what in the world does this have to do with me? I feel like I, I ask this question. I think of you as I'm walking through every week. You're like, why do you always ask that question? I think it's an important question. I think when we're walking through the book of Exodus, we can understand the context, we can see the greater things. But then at the end, really the question is, what in the world does that have to do with me? So I thought every week I would just say, what does it have to do with me? Well, we have no tabernacle, no priests. Why in the world would we study these things? And it's a great question. I'm glad that you asked. So in John chapter 5, verse 39 to 40, John chapter 5, 39 to 40, Jesus is looking at the religious leaders and he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Have you ever read that and wondered what in the world did Jesus mean there? How, how do they bear witness about you, man? Then in Luke 24, we then read after Jesus rose from the dead, he's talking to his disciples. He says, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And of course, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. They have no other scriptures. This is what he's talking about. And he said to them, thus it is written, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Not only that, but we also know from Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, when the early church got together, they devoted themselves to, firstly, what? The apostles' teaching. 
Namely, what were they teaching about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how he fulfilled the scriptures? This is, this is what they did. They gathered, they preached like we just went through, like Exodus 29, and they're like, well, what does this have to do with Jesus? Right, preaching about how Jesus fulfilled all of these shadows and types and longings of the text that go unfulfilled apart from Jesus. Thus, all of the Old Testament scriptures have these little roads that lead us wherever we are in a text all the way to the gospel in various ways. And we've mentioned a few ways already. I've kind of tipped my hand a little bit uh, and shown you a little bit about how this has to do with the life and ministry of Jesus and, and why they're important throughout redemptive history. But I want to take a moment and think together really explicitly, how does Exodus 28 and 29 prepare us for, for Jesus? Because I think as we do so, our affections for the gospel grow in greater ways. So let's see some of those roads that lead us to the life and ministry of Jesus, because we'll see wonderful shadows of greater things yet to come in the Bible. And there are many of them. And, and some of you are much smarter than I, and you probably have picked up on a lot of the shadows that I might miss right now. And I'm not going to go through all of them. If I did, we'd be here for a long time. I wrote lots of them, and I picked a few that I thought might be helpful. So I'm going to give you a few shadows stuck out to me in my study this past week. So, for example, when we see Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting, he's clothed by Moses with garments that were prepared for him by God from, for the ability to begin his ministry. So he's clothed by Moses with garments prepared for him at the beginning of his ministry. When I, when I read that, I'm also reminded how Jesus was first clothed with garments of flesh and bone. According to the plans and purposes of God, the Father who had, who had planned how we might be saved, first Christ was clothed. God the Son laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time, dwelling among us, putting on flesh and bone. Before he began the ministry prepared for him from before the foundation of the world as our true and better high priest. And then, upon further reflection, I'm also reminded about how at the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, he was stripped of all of his clothing. He was flogged beaten and spat upon, crucified, naked, standing condemned in our place as our true and better sin offering. So his clothing, the garments, is he clothed? And how he will be unclothed. But then just as Aaron and his sons had to, had to place their hands on the, on the head of the sacrifice, indicating that that, that sacrifice was judged in their place, the, the death that they deserved for their sins was placed upon that sacrifice, and the blood was poured out instead of theirs, I mean, we cannot help but think of the death of Jesus in this and how we who are guilty are made holy as we reach out by faith and believe on his sacrifice, that he stood condemned in our place for our sin as our true and better sin offering to make us holy and so that we might have communion with God. Thus, even when we read of Aaron's garments being sprinkled with blood and being made holy, we remember, brother and sister, that we have also been made holy by the blood of the sacrifice in our place. We are made holy as his people by faith in that sacrifice that we might have fellowship with God and that we might abide in him and sup with him and also enjoy the presence of one another as his redeemed people. And when I read of Aaron being washed before having his hands filled with ministry, I also can't help but having my mind raced to the very baptism of Jesus, the very start of his ministry as he was washed. Not because he was dirty or unclean, but rather as Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be the true and better priest 
to be the true and better Israel who passes through the waters and then enters into 40 days of temptation in the wilderness and yet succeeds where Israel and Adam and Aaron all fail. And then in chapter 28, when we read last week of how Aaron wore that ephod with the names of Israel on his shoulders, but also on his breastplate over his very heart so that he bore the judgment of God against them when he brought in sacrifices. So I also remember how Jesus bore the judgment of God against our many sins upon his shoulders and upon his heart as he suffered and died in our place, making atonement, but not just for one sin or for a few sins, but all of our sins, past, present, and future in that one moment. And then when I read about how Aaron and his sons were marked by the blood of the sacrifice, on their ears and thumbs and toes, I remember how the blood of Jesus trickled down his entire body and it pooled at the bottom of that old rugged cross where sorrow and love mingled together. I think of the crown that Aaron wore on his head, the golden plate that had inscribed on it, holy to the Lord, and I think of the crown that Jesus deserved to wear, and yet he left the glories of his heavenly kingdom, trading his priestly and kingly crown for a crown of thorns. And then how upon his resurrection from the dead, he was then crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2, 7. And now he's at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. And one day his kingdom will come crashing down upon the earth and we'll see how how glorious he is. And just as Israel knows that Yahweh is their God because of their salvation from the land of Egypt, we, brother and sister, have this exact same confidence because we know that Jesus is our Lord because we have been saved from an enemy much more pervasive and devastating and destructive than Egypt, namely Satan's sin and death. And now by faith in Jesus, we have the promise of God given in Exodus. We have been made holy by God and he dwells with us and in us by the power of his spirit. And he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. The spirit inside of us is our earnest, that we belong to him, that we've been purchased by him and he'll never forsake us. This is what we mean when we talk about how all of scriptures, all of them point to Jesus for their fulfillment. And texts like this, they are so profitable for us to spend time studying and meditating on. They stoke our affections in surprising ways for God, increasing our affections in Jesus but they also stand as a word of caution for us, especially if you're not a Christian. Like if you've not admitted your sin before God and believed upon Jesus as your sacrifice, as your Savior, God, and King, as your sin offering, then the same problem that Aaron and his sons had is the same problem that you currently have. You are a sinner, a rebel against God who deserves God's judgment to be poured out upon you in this life and in the one to come. For all that you deserve before a holy God, the creator and sustainer of all of creation in this moment is to die and then suffer his wrath, a tsunami of his judgment against your many sins. But friend, this doesn't have to be your story. Which is, which is the greatness of the gospel. In fact, this is why Jesus, God the Son, entered into human history, laying humanity alongside of divinity that we might know God, that we might know him, and also to make a way for unholy, guilty sinners like you and I to be declared holy and innocent in his presence by his sacrifice. See, Jesus has stood condemned in your place for your sins. And to do so, he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life 
Just like all sacrifices, he must have also lived an unblemished, free life of any trace of sin or stain of sin. Thus, one of the most important aspects of Jesus' ministry is that he lived the life that you ought to have lived. He lived a life that was pleasing to God the Father, a life that lived in perfect conformity to all of God's laws so that Jesus was perfect where we have failed. And then he, as our sin offering, stood condemned in our place, suffering the judgment of God the Father against your sins and my sins, and then he died. But then three days later, he rose bodily from the dead, conquering over Satan's sin and death. He was our sin offering, standing condemned in our place, one in the place of another, so that we might have forgiveness of God. And friend, this is what's on the table for you. That if you want to have forgiveness before God, it is available right now. Do you want to be forgiven for your sin? Do you want to have communion with God? Then there is a way to be pardoned. And it is not by trying harder or becoming moral or super religious. It's not by you doing a laundry list of good things and bringing those before God and saying, look what I did. It's not by that at all. No, rather it's by coming to God by faith, admitting that you are stained by sin and acknowledging that what you truly deserve before God is judgment. And then placing your hands upon Jesus by faith and believing he stood condemned in your place. He paid your debt before God so that you who are a sinner might go free and enjoy fellowship with God and with his people. And so that we might live our lives as a continual sacrifice, wholly devoted to him as our God, Savior, and King. So today, come to Jesus by faith, believe upon him, and you'll be cleansed made holy before God, and God will dwell with you. Then to my fellow Christians, it's kind of wonderful to be reminded of the story of God and his great kindness to us in a chapter like Exodus 29, to see just some of the shadows of the gospel and the wonderful work of Jesus. Or we, we might initially think that the book of Exodus might be unprofitable for our lives. As we read through, it's incredibly profitable. See how beautiful and wonderful it is if we just take time to dig into God's word. And so brothers and sisters, read chapters like this and be reminded that you, like these men, have been chosen by God, washed from the stains of your many sins. You have been robed in the righteousness of Jesus that is not yours, but it's a gift given to you by grace and through faith. You have now been anointed by the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 1.21 and 1 John 2.27, and you have been ordained every single one of you, so that your hands might be filled with ministry to God and to those around us, as every single one of us has gifts given to us by God to edify, to build his church, one another. Thus, as 1 Peter 2, 9 assures us, we now, you, brother and sister, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thus now, we are all agents and ministers of reconciliation, telling a world around us that is in desperate need of reconciliation with God, how they might experience it through the gospel. And we are all consecrated. We are made holy by the blood of Jesus, Romans six thirteen and 22. So, brother and sister, become who you are. Just as the priests of God had their ears and hands and feet 
anointed with the blood of the sacrifice to remind them that their entire lives would be consecrated for the purpose of listening to the voice of God and carrying out the work that he had ordained for them. So we too ought to pay close attention to what we hear and believe, bringing them into conformity with God's word. And then we are to be uh, reminded that the actions of our hands have also been made holy by the blood of Jesus. Thus, we ought to use our hands in proper ways, not lifting them in anger, as 1 Timothy 2, 2 explains, nor using them for sexual sin, for various other things, but rather using our hands in pure ways for the flourishing of those around us, that we might use the strength of our hands to bring life to others in ways that demonstrate our faith. And then lastly, we are to remember that where we go with our feet is to be impacted by the blood of Jesus, that we might be those who have beautiful feet as we bring the gospel to those who have no hope in this life or in the one to come. And as we stay away from places where we ought not to go, as we see in the book of Proverbs, right? Stay away from the path of falling, follow the path of wisdom. Or in conclusion, as the song I learned as a small child put it, be careful little feet where you go careful little hands what we do be careful little ears what we hear for the blood of jesus is to be upon us reminding us who we are as a holy people and live lives in conformity to his righteous rule so let's pray